Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Will you turn with me to Acts chapter 17 again? We're going to look at verses 16 to 34 that Tommy led us in reading. And before we study this passage of Scripture together, uh, I want to speak for you a moment about the title, because I sure don't want to offend anyone. You can find it on the screen behind me or on the front page of your bulletin where the outline is. We have been going through the book of Acts, uh, learning that the mission that Jesus gave us, the mission is a go uh, we are so supposed to all be, be involved in going and making disciples of Jesus by sharing the gospel. Uh, here in this passage, Paul has a unique opportunity to do that. Um, by now you know that it was his typical method uh, to always begin at a local synagogue in each city where uh, he would speak to the Jewish people, telling them that the Messiah that God had promised them uh, since Genesis chapter 3, that Messiah is Jesus Christ. But, but here, in this passage, Paul gets to talk about Jesus to a group of people outside of his normal ministry method. He's speaking to incredibly educated people, philosophers. Athens at this time is an intellectual center of the world. And um, we might think of it maybe as uh, Harvard or, or Oxford University. But while they may have been the top intellectual thinkers of that day, the people that Paul shares the gospel with here are completely ignorant, <laughs> completely ignorant of who Jesus is and what he's done for them. They're completely ignorant about God or what God says in his word. And so Paul is going to have to use a different gospel sharing method to share the exact same message, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that Jesus saves. This is such a great passage of scripture for us as followers of Christ this morning, because just like Paul, we are tasked with sharing the gospel. The mission is a go, but the reality is we are now living in a day and age. We're living in a culture that is very much full of people, just like Paul is speaking to right here. Though you and I may live in what some people describe or used to describe anyway as the Bible Belt um, the individuals that you will come across probably almost every day, they're genuinely now pretty ignorant of what God says in his word about who he is and how we're saved and who Jesus is and what he offers us and the salvation that's found only in him. And depending on each different person and depending on each different situation, um, we can learn a lot here. It might be best for us to follow Paul's example here and how he explains the gospel to someone with that kind of background. Before we look at this verse by verse together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, thank you so much for this passage of scripture. Um, it's been encouraging to see how you've been working through your church, just as you promised you would. Uh, Jesus would send the Holy Spirit, and he would empower those who follow Christ, those who have trusted Christ as Savior. He would empower them to do uh, incredible things in sharing the gospel and in glorifying you. We learned last week, Lord, that people described it as... Uh, Christians turning the world upside down for Jesus. And God, we want to do that. We want you to use us to do that. God, we are, uh, we're in a situation here where things are a lot different than they were 10, 20, 30 years ago. And um, we, we come across people that don't know 
really a, a whole lot about who you are. They might even go to church <laughs> regularly, but they, they don't know a whole lot about the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we come across them, Lord, would you use us to do what Paul does here, to share the gospel in a way that they can understand? And God, as we study this passage of scripture this morning, if there's anything that you, your Holy Spirit needs to have changed in our life, anything that we need to do to align ourselves with your will to glorify you and to receive good from your hand, would you, would you convict us to do that this morning? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, stirred contention. That, that is um, the description that verse 16 gives us of Paul's emotional state here as he waited in the city of Athens for Silas and Timothy to, to come down and join him from Berea. It says in verse 16 that Paul's spirit was stirred within him when he saw the city of Athens, that it was wholly given to idolatry. Uh, some modern Bible translations might put it this way. Paul was greatly distressed. He was deeply disturbed. The Greek word for Paul's spirit being stirred here is paraxuno, and it literally means to have a hatred for something. So this is a little stronger than maybe what we would think about, oh, I have a stirring in my spirit. Paul has a hatred here. Let me ask you something this morning. Does sin stir your spirit that way? Does it? Uh, your own sin? I, I've told you before, when I, I can't wait for heaven. Jesus could come back right now and it'd be all right with me. Um, but the thing I love most about heaven is the lack of sin there. I'm so sick of sin. I'm sick of struggling with it in my life. I, I'm sick of seeing it go on in this world where it's tolerated and celebrated. Uh, I'm, I'm sick of the glory it steals from God. Are you stirred in your spirit with a hatred for sin in the lives of other people, the, the uh, uh, prison that it is for them. May we never get to a place where you and I tolerate what Jesus bled and died for. Uh, it's dangerous. It's deadly. It should stir our spirit just like it did for, for Paul here. Are we even concerned about sin anymore? Because see, when sin is tolerated, it will not be long before it's legislated and then celebrated. And wouldn't you say that's kind of where we are right now, even in this country, in this world? Now, Paul didn't hate the people. doesn't say that. He didn't hate the city of Athens that was given over to idolatry. He hated the sin. He hated the idolatry. It deeply disturbed him. And he hated that sin because he loved the eternal souls of these people. And he hated that sin because he loved God being glorified. All of this idolatry that's in Athens, it says here that it stirred Paul's spirit to the point that he could not any longer wait uh, for his teammates to come down from Berea. He felt the urge right now to free these people from their enslavement to idolatry. That's what verse 17 tells us. Therefore, Paul disputed in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. So as before, Paul begins in the local synagogue <clears throat> here in Athens. But those who are enslaved to idolatry uh, weren't just God's ethnic people, the Jews who worshiped there. They were also Gentiles in the city that were enslaved to idolatry. Verse 17 tells us that Paul took the life-transforming gospel of Jesus Christ and he took it to the marketplace. And he told everyone who was there about Jesus every day as well. And it was in the marketplace that the Greek philosophers, who Athens was full of them, they would teach and they would debate about things like the meaning of life and, and how did this world begin and what is the purpose of life and, and how should we live. 
And Paul sees this great opportunity here to answer every single one of those questions and not with man-constructed or man-developed concepts or ideas. He's going to give them truth, the actual truth of God's word. Now, some of those in the marketplace not only heard what Paul was saying, they were very interested in it. In verses 18 through 20, we find out that certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics, they met Paul there and they listened to what he was teaching. And it says they took him. That's a little stronger than a mere invitation. I don't think they arrested him, but they definitely brought him physically uh, to their main teaching place. Uh, called the Areopagus. It's a location, um, we could view it kind of as an open-air classroom up on a hill there in the city. And they told Paul that they wanted him to teach them all this new doctrine, it says, um, because it was strange to their ears in verses uh, 19 and, and 20. The things that Paul was saying and what he would say, these were propositions that they had never heard before. They are concepts they had never considered, this gospel of Jesus Christ. And verse 21 tells us that the people, especially the philosophers here in Athens, they love nothing more than to uh, hear and talk about and discuss and debate new ideas, new ways of thinking about life, new ways of finding meaning and purpose in life. What an opportunity here for Paul, right? I mean, he gets an invitation to address the intellectual elite in this city. But, you know, we have the same opportunity as well. Verse 18 mentioned two prominent schools of philosophy that were there, the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans had decided and, and taught, and they lived by the idea that the meaning of life was to enjoy life. Doing whatever you want, doing whatever it takes to make that happen, to make you happy. Their motto could be eat, drink, and be merry. And these people were hedonists who believed living it up by living however you wanted, that was what life was all about. Do we encounter Epicureans today? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. We definitely live in a culture that could be described as hedonistic, where people just intensely pursue pleasure. We hear things like, follow your heart. And you're going to speak to the same kind of people that Paul's speaking to here. The other group was the Stoics, and they believed that mankind has a much greater purpose far beyond seeking pleasure for yourself, no matter the cost. Uh, the Stoics were very moral people. Um, they lived by a strict code of conduct, and, and while that produced certain noble qualities, it also resulted in a life that was full of pride and self-sufficiency. What about them? Do you and I encounter Stoics now? I want you to think of religious people who really don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ and never been saved. Um, they have rules <laughs> for them and for others, and they look down on others who live differently, people who are full of pride, but also down deep full of despair because nobody can live as God wants us to live without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, without the Holy Spirit indwelling you. So we got two groups of intellectuals completely on, on opposite sides of the spectrum here, just, you know, just like our divided world today. Two groups of intellectuals, but both of them are ignorant of who God truly is, what God has done for them, what God offers us in Jesus Christ, and what God demands of us. And Paul now has the opportunity to fill them in on all of that, to teach them regarding what life is really all about. And I want you to pay attention to what he does here because you and I, We'll have that same opportunity too, and we do well to follow uh, his method here. It's a specific communication in verses 22 to 31. I want you to think about this. How would you share the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone who is uh, enslaved to sin 
and completely ignorant of who God is or God's word or God's will for their lives? How would you share the gospel with somebody who thought that life was all about seeking pleasure and treasures here in this life? Or how would you share the gospel with someone who believed that, you know what, we all ought to live moral and upright lives, but, but we can do that in our own strength and still have no idea whatsoever about who God is or what God says in his word? See, when Paul would go to the synagogue of each city on these mission trips and he would speak to the Jewish people there, do you understand he was talking to a demographic who already had a very high um, value of God's word? They knew God's word. When he would say, turn to Leviticus and see Jesus there, or turn to uh, First Kings and see Jesus there, uh, it didn't take them long. And Paul was linking the promises throughout the Old Testament about who the Messiah would be uh, with them. That is not who he is speaking to here. So that method's not going to work at all. These people have never cracked the Bible. I want you to notice what Paul does here. He still uses God's word. He summarizes it, definitely. He doesn't tell them to turn to a chapter and verse. In verse 22, Paul begins teaching this crowd of intellectuals who had invited him to speak. And he starts with an introduction. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. The Greek word can mean superstitious, like we think of it. Or it can simply mean you're really too religious. And I want you to try to picture this scene. So Paul's up on stage at this Areopagus, this outdoor amphitheater classroom, and right behind where he's given his address is the city skyline of Athens, a skyline that is dotted with temple after temple after temple and altar to this God and to that God. And Paul tells him in verse 23, I've traveled through your city. I've seen your devotions. The Greek word is sabasma. I've seen your objects of worship, all of these temples and all of these Idol altars. I've seen them. There's temples everywhere. <laughs> you get people have idols all over. I even found one altar that you had made to the unknown God. These Athenian philosophers were trying to cover all the bases, weren't they? They had a church to an unknown God, a temple to an unknown God. I couldn't help but think of that Ricky Bobby movie. A NASCAR driver gets in a crash and he runs out on the track thinking he's hurt. And you remember what he was doing? He prays, help me, help me God, help me Buddha, help me Allah, help me Oprah Winfrey. And he was trying to cover all the bases there. And we might laugh at, at that, but this is a reality for these Athenian people here. They were so imprisoned by idolatry that they wanted to make sure that they hadn't left one God out. But they had. That's what Paul tells them. They had. By having all these temples and idols to a bunch of false gods, they had ignorantly been offending the one true God that they didn't know. And that's the thrust of Paul's message here. And he's going to tell them all about this unknown God that they are ignorant of. First of all, he's a creator. Verse 24. Now, this is an important launch point in sharing the gospel with someone who has little understanding uh, of God's word. I mean, where should you start? You want to take them to the Romans road? I mean, you can do that, but it might not make a whole lot of sense to them. When you begin with someone like that, you ought to take them to the beginning. Take them to Genesis where it tells us. And that's why it's so important that we believe what God says in Genesis and don't be trying to muddy things up with our own philosophies. You've got to start somewhere. And if you don't start on a good foundation, you're never going to end in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So he starts at creation. He says in verse 24, God made the world and he made everything in it. He is Lord of heaven and earth. And listen, there is a ton of theology and information in that little phrase right there. Do you understand what it implies? Do you you understand how it impacts your life and my life? God made the world and everything in it. He is Lord of heaven and earth. Because God alone is the creator, that means that everything else, including you and I, is creation. And because he's the Lord of heaven and earth, it means that everything, including you and I, has an obligation as creation to our creator. The next phrase in verse 25, I wonder if Paul turns around and he points to that skyline behind him full of idolatrous temples because he says there, God does not dwell in them. God is not worshiped with men's hands, meaning by you and I making an idol or image of him. God doesn't need anything. He's the one who gives life and breath and everything to all things. And this creation launch point here to share the gospel continues in verses 26 to 27. With an emphasis now on our obligation as creation to our creator. We're here to worship him. That's what we're told there. God created us to worship him. Do you want to know what your life purpose is? It's to worship God. That's why he created you. If you're a Christian, that's why he recreated you. That's the reason you were born. That's the reason God woke you up this morning, is to worship him. To seek him and find him is what it says there in verse 27. That they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. Reminds me of Jeremiah. God says, I'm not a God who's far off. He came to us in Jesus Christ. Paul's getting there. And God tells us here in verse 28, um, and this verse is out on the church sign right now. I've been there for a couple of weeks. For in him, in God, we live and we move and we have our being. It's actually a quote from one of the philosophers named Epimenides. Paul quotes him here. And then the next phrase is a quote from a different philosopher named Aratus. Uh, God asked Paul, use that quote. For we are also his offspring, meaning we are God's offspring. Because he is creator, we are his creation. We are like his children. And then verses 29 to 30, Paul directly corrects their ignorant understanding of who God is and what he offers us and what he wants from us. Let's read verses 29 to 30 once more. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like on a gold or silver or stone that's graven by art and man's device. Pay attention to this verse. In the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Now, I'm not telling you to call anyone you share the gospel with ignorant. I don't think that'd be a good choice. Um, But the message needs to be the same. What does God demand of us? Because he's the creator and we're his creation. We all need to repent because we haven't been doing what he created us for. We haven't been living our lives completely to worship him. That's the one thing that he desires of us. This God who created us, who we have an obligation as his creation to worship, who came to us as Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. There's one thing that he desires now, is that we repent. That's what verse 30 says, that we repent and worship him. What does that mean? It means that in faith we turn from sin and from idolatry to him. It means that we in faith uh, realign ourselves to his purpose and waking us up this morning and giving us life. Have you repented? When I was in Moldova last month, um, I noticed 
that that was a term that they used to describe being saved, being a born-again Christian. They would say something like this. It was six years ago that I repented. Man, I love that. But an easy way. Sometimes we can cloud it up and muddy it up. I really like that way of describing being born again. That's what it means to be a Christian at some point in your life when you heard who God is for you in Jesus Christ, what he has done for you, what he offers you, what he demands of you. You repented. You turned from sin to faith in him. Have you? Have you done that? That was Jesus' first message. We, we went through the book of Mark a couple months back. He said, repent and believe. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's what Paul is saying here in verse 31. God, as Paul described to this crowd and to you when I hear this morning, why repenting, why doing that is so important. Verse 31 says, because God's got a day. He's appointed a day in which he will judge the world by that man. You can capitalize that. Um, by Jesus, whom he has ordained. By Jesus, who is returning. When? I don't know. I mean, I think it's really soon. I've told you that. But when, when I was brought here as a youth pastor, I remember the personnel committee and the youth committee meeting. So why, why do you feel like God wants you to be a pastor here? I said, I don't think we got long. And if he wants to use me to prepare all of his people to be ready to meet him, that's what I want to do. That's what I'll spend my life doing. Uh, have you repented? Because Jesus is returning. It could be weeks or months or years from now. It, it could be before we leave here this morning. But God's word says... That Jesus Christ is returning to judge this world, and God commands us to be ready for his return by repenting, by turning from sin and turning to faith in Jesus Christ. And at the end of verse 31, Paul refers to Christ's resurrection from the dead. It seems like Easter to me. It seems like it was so long ago, just a couple weeks back. That's when we specifically celebrated the resurrection of Christ. We do it every Sunday. That's why we meet on Sunday. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That is our assurance that, number one, Jesus is returning because he's not still in that tomb, amen? No, he ascended into heaven, and he's waiting there for God's appointed time, and he will return. But it's also our assurance that those who repent and trust in Christ as Savior, <clears throat> they'll have the assurance that they'll rise just like Jesus did. They'll have eternal life. But this is when Paul's message comes to an end. And I don't necessarily think by choice. See, mentioning the resurrection, it caused a segregating conclusion here. Neither of those two philosophical schools of thought, neither the Stoics nor the Epicureans, they believed in a, neither of them believed in a bodily resurrection. They, they loved to talk about the meaning of life, uh, but they had no concept in or no interest in an afterlife where we would actually have physical bodies. Both of them thought that the physical body was terrible. It was a thing that needed to be shaken off and destroyed. Verse 32 tells us that the response, the segregating conclusion here of them to Paul mentioning Christ's resurrection, well, some of them mocked. Oh, oh yeah, resurrection. Some of them were like, okay, that was great. New, new doctrine. It's definitely a strange to our ears. We'll see you later. And they headed out. Some of them, it says there in verse 32, wanted to hear more. They're like, this is interesting. Can you come back and teach it the next time we meet here? But either way, verse 33 lets us know that Paul departed from them. The conclusion of Paul's gospel message, it caused a segregation. The majority of the crowd rejected what he had to say about trusting in Jesus as Savior. But verse 34 does tell us that, that certain men clave to Paul and they believed. It's a philosopher named Dionysius and a woman named Damaris. They both trusted in Jesus as their Savior that day. Church, we need to realize that the gospel message, it is always a segregating thing. Um, I, I mean, that's why you're here this morning. <laughs> really? Um, there's a bunch of people who aren't here. They're out, probably going out playing golf or, you know, doing a million other things. Million, million other people doing a million other things. 
The gospel is a segregating thing. The gospel always forces a segregating conclusion. You have to choose Christ or you have to reject Christ. Some will believe in who Jesus is and what he's done to save us, and some will reject that. God's word tells us as much. What, what I'm concerned about is what about you? That's the one you need to be worried about. What about you? Have you repented? Can you look back at some point in time in your life when you heard this gospel message, you heard who Jesus is and what he has done for you, and then you did what he demands of you? Have you repented? That's what he demands of you. In faith, turning from sin to him. Can you look back on some moment when in in prayer you said to God, I'm done. I'm done living for me. And I'm done trying to earn your love by, by what I do or what I don't do. From here on out, I'm trusting only in who Jesus is and what he's done. For me to save me. If not, do that right now. I mean, do it right now. Don't wait. Not another minute. Christian, you who have, I know sometimes we doubt whether or not we are saved. Uh, I don't know if I've ever met a Christian who said they've never struggled with that. And we might be struggling with some sin because Satan loves to use that as a tool to get us to doubt whether we did enough or whether we did something the right way in order to get saved. Listen, you don't do anything to get saved but trust in what Jesus did for you. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Pastor Paul Washer says, though, and if you've ever struggled with doubt about your salvation, the best evidence that there was a time in your life when you repented and believed is that you do so now, even to a greater degree. I'm not talking about getting saved again. Once you're saved, you're saved. You're his. He holds you in the palm of your hand. But do you repent now to, to an even greater degree? Uh, as you grow in Christ, as the Holy Spirit who indwells you uh, and conforms you to the image of Jesus, is he pointing out areas where you need to obey this command at the end of verse 30? God commands every, all men everywhere to re- repent. Is there a time in your life that you did repent and you can see that, you know what, I sin and I still struggle with sin, but I can't enjoy it. I can't enjoy it. And God, this morning, I want to repent of it. I want to turn from sin to faith in you. That's what the Christian life is all about. It's not you getting saved again. It's the Holy Spirit making you more like Jesus. You asking God to search your heart. Weed out anything that don't look like Christ. Is there some area that until this point you've roped off? Some struggle with sin where you've told God, you you can't have that just yet. That's mine. Would you let that go this morning? Repent. He commands all men everywhere to repent, even Christians. As Tommy comes to lead us in a time to respond to God's word, what will be your response? It's always a segregating conclusion. The gospel always does it. Will it be mocking? Will it be a, eh, maybe later I want to hear more? Or will it be a, a yes, Jesus, I'm yours. I'm yours.